from Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. All right, well, I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. If you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn to Mark chapter 14. If you don't have one with you, we'll have it up on the screen as we look at all the texts together this morning. We've been working our way through Mark chapter 14. Today we're in verse 53. So we'll start in verse 53, Mark 14, 53, and we will go to verse 65. And that's what we'll go ahead and look at this morning. Well, this verse, we've been kind of walking through the book of Mark. Not kind of, we've been walking through the book of Mark. And as this has kind of gone on, Jesus, we know he's been in the last week of his life and been walking with him through that. And he has been making his way to the cross. He's said this on three separate occasions. He's made very clear. He's predicted his own death and resurrection three times in the book of Mark, that this is going to happen. So that it's not a, there's no spoiler as to the end of what's going to happen in the story. Jesus is going to die on a cross for sin, and then he's going to raise from the dead. And so we want to remember that as we walk through passages like this one. And what happened last week, in last week's passage, is Jesus had uh, what we know as the Lord's Supper, uh, or the Last Supper with his disciples. And they ate, and they celebrated the Passover together, and he instituted something new as he took a cup and said, this is my blood of the new covenant, and he took bread and said, this is my body, and it's broken for you, and this is something that Christians now do as a symbol to remember that Jesus' blood was poured out for us, that his body broken for us, and then after he does this with these people and he tells them how much he loves them and cares for them, he is betrayed by one of his closest friends. One of his closest friends betrays him with a kiss. 
in everyone else, when these, this mob comes to arrest him in the middle of the night, they all flee. Now they promise they're not going to do that. They tell him, even if we have to die, we'll stick with you. Even if everybody else leaves you, Jesus, Peter says, I'll stay with you. But they're all made to be liars. In Mark 14, 50, it says, they all fled and left him alone. And so this is where Jesus is. He has now been arrested by this mob and this mob of Jewish authorities are now taking him to go and stand trial. And this is the trial of Jesus. And that's what we want to look at. It is the trial that is supposed to bring out the truth. I mean, that's what trials do, right? Trials, the point of a trial is we're going to bring out the truth and then should the truth demand it, we're going to exercise justice and administer justice. That's what a trial is meant to do. And what's so interesting, I think, about this particular trial is the truth does come out. The truth is very clear about who Jesus is. And we know that at the end of this story, because Jesus has told us three times in the book of Mark, we know that the wrath of God and the justice of God is going to be satisfied. Truth will be known. Justice will be satisfied like a trial is supposed to do. But it happens in a way that we would never expect. It happens because an innocent man is the one who dies for guilty sinners like me and you. Because what we see in this passage is that Jesus is totally innocent, he is totally willing, and he is totally the Christ. That's the three things that I want us to take away this morning, that he is totally innocent, totally willing, and totally the Christ. So before we do that, we'll kind of walk through the passage with those subheadings. I want to read the passage in its entirety for us. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. We'll have it on the screen. It'll do the cool scroll thing for those of you who need help paying attention. Verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Instead stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him and say to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows.
the innocent son of God is brought in this trial. And so he's arrested and they take him to the Sanhedrin. That's those three groups that it mentions there in verse 53. As he gets led to the high priest, it's also the chief priest, the elders, and the scribes. And we can call those all one name. That's the Sanhedrin. And what that was was a Jewish council of people who stood between the Jewish people and the Roman government. Now, we're going to see to get a capital punishment, to put somebody to death, they're going to need the Romans to help them do that. The Jews did not have the authority in this time to just go around killing people. Rome would not have been okay with that. But before they want to take him to Pilate, before the Roman governor, they want to have a trial of their own that has already committed him to guilt. They want to have a trial that shows that he is, in fact, guilty before them. But in this, and we can see that there, I believe it's uh, verse uh, 55, at the end it says, the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Now that's not a good story, right? When the jury has already decided that you're guilty, you're in a bad situation. And that's where Jesus finds himself. They've already decided his guilt before it even comes about. And in fact, they're ignoring even their own rules. Their own rules, this court, first of all, would not have been allowed to be held at night. That this court had to be held during the daytime to have any legitimacy to it. But they don't worry about that. Why? Because they're already seeking to put him to death and to condemn him. You're supposed to have at least two credible witnesses in a capital case. We know throughout this that there's no credible witnesses. And the high priest gets to the point even says, what more need for witnesses do we have? Why is he saying that? Because the witnesses aren't panning out for him. They're not giving him the verdict that he wants. But because they're seeking to have him killed, they're just making things work their way and they're, they're ignoring their own rules that they're supposed to do. The defendant was actually supposed to be allowed to defend their own case and to do that first. The defendant in a capital case was supposed to be able to say, here are all the reasons that I'm innocent and you shouldn't kill me. And then they would prosecute him. But Jesus isn't allowed to do that. He's brought in and they just immediately start bringing false witnesses against him. They can't get these witnesses to agree. And in a capital case, if the verdict is guilty, they were supposed to have another trial the following day. See, in a capital case at this time, if you're going to have sentenced somebody to death, they had to be convicted basically twice because they wanted to make sure before they killed someone that they got it right. And none of this happens with Jesus. Jesus is killed we know, and they're not supposed to have one on, on a holiday, and it's the Passover. They're not supposed to have a, a trial on the eve of the Sabbath, and it's the eve of the Sabbath. Basically, there's nothing about this court that is made to give it any kind of legitimacy whatsoever. They're cutting corners, and they're justifying what they're doing. Why? Because they've already made up in their hearts, and they're seeking to have him killed. They even go so far that they even take some words out of context and they claim that Jesus wants to destroy the temple and rebuild it. And they take his own words out of context. See, in John chapter 2, we hear what Jesus actually did say. In John chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body, where therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word of Jesus that they had spoken. So they're taking that out of context. And in Mark, even then, they can't get these witnesses to agree. They can't get the witnesses, even when they're trying to fake it and manipulate their way, they can't even get a fake story straight. In Deuteronomy 17, 
verse 6, it tells us this. According to the law of Moses, according to the law that these Jewish men should have been bound to, God's holy, perfect law that they should have honored, it says this, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And what do we have happening in Jesus' case? We get to the point where they don't even need any witnesses. His own testimony is enough. And then they condemn him and put him to death. Why? Because Jesus is totally innocent. And that's what this trial is showing us. That's why Mark is showing us the reality of what is happening. Because he's trying to tell us he went through the procedure. And even through the procedure, he was proven innocent. And they killed him anyway. Now here's the reality, I think, as we read this. Is we want to look at this and we want to make an enemy of these evil men. And we want to say, man, how could they do that? Were they, they're so evil in their hearts. They're already seeking a verdict before they even got there. And the reality is, is we look more like them than unlike them. The reality is, is we are so similar because our desires, the things that we seek, determine whether or not we will adhere to God's law or not. Will we look at the law of God and see it as good and precious and right? Or will we manipulate it and try to get around it and do what we want to do? Well, it depends what we seek. If we seek first the kingdom of God, then of course we'll look at God's law and see that it's beautiful and right. But if we seek our own kingdom, if we seek ourselves like these men were doing, we won't look much different from them at all, will we? We will justify evil to indulge our own flesh. It's not that much. It's really not that bad what I did. At least I'm not like these people over there. I mean, are you sure that's okay? I mean, like that stuff's legal these days, right? It's fine. Are you sure that we can do that? I didn't, it wasn't that much that I really had. I mean, just a little peek here. Is it really that bad to do that? We'll do those things, won't we? And we'll justify them and we'll hold court on our own. But the reality is, if what we seek and our desires are not to glorify God first and foremost, we won't find the truth. We'll move around it. If you want respect, you'll get loud and demanding. And when someone calls you out for being angry, you'll say, whoa, whoa, whoa. If they would have just gotten in line, they deserved that, didn't they? I don't think that's what God's law would say. God's word would tell us that we can remain calm keep control of ourselves no matter of our circumstances. We want recognition, so we got to hunt for it. We got to go. We want, we got to go to that social media, and we're just checking it all the time. Man, did anybody like it? Did anybody, I just got to know. I got to know that they, that they like that thing. And all the while, God is saying, seek me. Get your recognition from me. These are the things that we do. A while ago, we, we showed a diagram. I think we have it up on the, on the screen today, if possible. Yay. And, and what, what we did is, is we see that the throne of God, is this is kind of like, we call it the throne diagram. You can see there's a little heart up there. I'll try to get up the way. And that represents our heart. See, there's a heart, and, and, and on your heart, there's this throne. And somebody has to sit on the throne of your heart. Now, that little crown that we put up there, we wanted that to recognize King Jesus, that Jesus is to be king, and Jesus is to sit on the throne of my heart. And then you have all these other desires. Now, you can put these desires in there. They can be good things, so not necessarily bad things, or they can be evil things that need to just be completely put away. But even good things that we know in our lives, like maybe seeking truth or justice, which is what these people and these men in the Sanhedrin are saying— they want to seek, though that's not really true. They just want to seek themselves. They're allowing those other desires to slowly creep their way 
up this metaphorical staircase until eventually that is what sits on the throne of their heart. Something else has taken the place of Jesus. Something else has taken the place of God on the throne of their hearts. And therefore, they're able to bring in a trumped-up court where they're breaking all of their own rules. And somehow men who would have had massive, and I'm talking massive portions of the Old Testament law memorized, somehow conveniently forget Deuteronomy 17.6. And they ignore it, and they put a man to death, even though he is innocent. Why? Because something else is ruling them. We call these ruling desires. And what I want to say is you look more like them than unlike them, and so do I. There are desires within me that are always trying to make their way onto the throne of my heart. And if I am not diligent in repentance and taking hold by faith and telling Jesus, Jesus, you got to be back on the throne of that heart. Jesus, this is where I'm failing. I need help. And calling out to him and helping him put to death the things of the flesh then inevitably I will hold court in my own heart and in my own mind and I will find my way good and right and Jesus will be found guilty though he is totally innocent. And that's what I want to encourage us today is that we must beware of our own desires. The unchecked and unsubmitted desire will cause a disregard for the law of God. Our enemy is not the Sanhedrin. Our enemy is desires desires that are sinful and wrong. We have a worship problem, and so did they. We look more like them than unlike them, if we're honest. But it's good news that Jesus is totally innocent. And even though he is totally innocent, he is also totally willing. He is totally willing. Looking at the next two verses, picking up in verse 60. And we're just going to go to the first half of 61, and then we'll finish out the rest. But looking at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. There are a lot of ways that I am just not like Jesus. This is definitely one of those ways. When people accuse me of things that are untrue, when people come after me, my first response is to fight for my righteousness. My first response is to say, "Uh uh-uh, you are not going to accuse me. I'm not going down for anything that I didn't do. There is no way. That's who I am. And and sinfully, not who I hope I am becoming in Christ Jesus. But that's the reality. And I look at Jesus. He is having all these things, multiple people, just flat out lie in front of him, take his own words out of context. His own friends have just betrayed him. And he sits there and he's silent. Have you no answer to make? Justify yourself. And he is silent. He's totally silent before them. We've talked about this in past Sundays, but the book of Mark, most likely, what I believe it to be, is Peter's account. So even though it's by the hand of Mark, it seems to be that it is Peter's account of the life of Jesus. Peter then writes two more books, but in one of them, 1 Peter, he actually explains something that's going on. He's addressing uh, slaves at the time, slaves who are being mistreated by their masters, but he explains what's happening in this moment of this trial in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And he talks to these slaves and he tells them, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. I'll read that just one more time because it's so good. But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you have been called because Christ Jesus, or because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Right? I would be threatening them back. Like, if you do this, you better look out. If you unjustly punish me, you're going to get what's coming to you too. Uh, There is no way I would let anybody make me go down for something I did not do. There is no way. But Jesus does not threaten. Jesus does not revile in return, but instead continues to entrust himself to him, talking about God the Father, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and, o- shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is incredible. Jesus is saying, you can be like him. You can suffer unjustly and do so without reviling return, without uttering threats. Why? Because you can trust the one who judges righteously, who judges justly. My grandma is now in her 70s. She's a great grandma to uh, eight grandchildren now. She grew up in a household of 14 kids. She had two sons of her own. Had uh, I'm trying to do the math in my head. Maybe I should have written this down. Jimmy, Josh, Tatum, Jordan, Tess. Uh, five grandchildren of her own. Another eight great great grandchildren. And she has. And she is. If you've ever met my grandma, she is spry. I mean, she's still at it. She's taking care of kids. She watches four of my cousin's kids on a weekly basis. She has raised a lot of children. My grandma will tell us this. When we all had babies, she gave us all the same advice. When that baby is, is, is crying and fussing in the middle of the night and, and, and is uncomfortable, you can't get anxious. You can't be all anxious. You can't, that baby will know if you're anxious. If you want to calm and soothe your baby, you've got to be calm. You've got to calm down and you've got to be able to soothe your baby because your baby will feel that. They'll be able to be calm because they know that you are calm. And so you have to get good as a parent, right? It doesn't happen right off the bat. You just got to endure some of, some pain that your child gives you, right? They scream for a long time. You just got to kind of endure it, but you got to keep your cool if you want any hope of soothing that baby, right? That's what you have to do. Psalm 131 says this, Although my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy my, with myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. 
what is amazing about the willingness of Jesus, and what I'm trying to bring into our life, is his trust of the Father. In this moment, he is calm, cool, collected, because he has submitted his will to the Father in the garden right before this. He has said, it's not my will, but yours be done. He can remain silent. He doesn't need to feel the need to defend himself. He doesn't have to fight for his right to not go to the cross for sin, even though he doesn't deserve it. He's able to be calm and collected because he's entrusted himself to the Father, the one who judges justly. And here's what's amazing for us is that means when we are anxious, when we are the baby who's kind of crying and, and having the difficulty, what do we need to do? We need to run to the arms of the Father, the one who judges justly. We need to be like the weaned child who runs to the arm of their mother and is calm and quieted because we're comforted by the one who is not anxious, the one who is not worried, the one who judges justly. If Jesus can remain silent, resolved, calm, and quieted, as people determine his destiny, his death, we can follow in his footsteps and endure suffering unjustly because we must follow in his footsteps to continue to trust the one who judges justly. That's the call for us as Christians. We must remain calm because when Jesus does this, he fulfills that prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like sheep that go before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His willingness is a show of his control, of his trust in the Father. Because he is totally willing, totally innocent, we see that he is totally the Christ. The high priest in exasperation, picking up at the verse, end of verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The high priest, looking looking for that verdict, trying to get to him, looks to Jesus and says, are you? The Christ, the son of the blessed. That, that's a, it's a way to say, are you the son of God? Do you see yourself as being equal with God? The way that he's phrasing that is asking, do you think you're equal with God? Do you really think you're his son? Do you really think this is who you are? And to that, Jesus says, I am. I am. I am the son of the blessed. And then to even just nail, the, nail down a little further, he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. When we went through Mark 13, Jesus said something really similar about his second coming, that he would come in power and in glory. And he talked about coming in the clouds. And we talked about in the Old Testament that clouds are a symbol of the presence of God. That you can think of Israel, they were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of smoke by night. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see that. Remember who he's talking to. He can use Old Testament language. He's literally talking to the high priest. The high priest knows his Old Testament really well. Jesus looks to him and says, I am, which is the same thing that when Moses asked God, who are you? God says, I am. 
That's who I am. And then he says, and you're going to see me come with power, and I'm going to come in the clouds. Jesus is leaving no room. He's not leaving any doubt about his identity. Now, that's something he's been hiding in the book of Mark. Demons will come and say, get away from us. You're the son of God. And he'll silence them. Or he'll tell other people, he'll say, don't tell anybody. It's not the time. Now Jesus is saying, now is the time that all will know that I am the son of God. Because what still needed to be fulfilled was the suffering of Christ. And he's not leaving any room to say anything else. He does this. And what happens then is they come and they take him. They spit on him, cover his face, beat him. And they fulfill his own prophecy in Mark 10, 33-34, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. And after three days he will rise. Right here in this passage, we see that he is spit on, he is mocked, prophesied, and he is beat. They're going to kill him. And in three days he's going to rise. His own declaration of who he is is so clear. I have talked to many people when I'm, whether I'm talking at the street or a block party or whatever it is, who will claim things like, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. They've never read Mark 14. There could be no clearer claim to deity. I am the Son of God. And I will come with power. And in the clouds, he is leaving no room. We have other people who will say things like, well, Jesus, you know, he's a good moral teacher. His morals are good. Not so sure about the whole Son of God thing. Jesus is leaving us no room. He is leaving no room of whose identity is. He is making so clear, we, I am the Son of God. I am equal with God. I am part of the Trinity. I am coming in power. I'm, co- I'm not just some good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis popularized an argument what we sometimes call liar, lord, or liar, lunatic, or lord, or lord, liar, lunatic, however you want to say it, I guess. But it's basically this, is Jesus either is who he said he is. He either is Lord, he either is the Son of God who came to die for sin, or he lied to everybody because he said that's who he was. And if he's a liar, he can't just be a good moral teacher. Good moral teachers don't lie about their actual identity. Or he's just totally crazy. And he actually thinks he's the Son of God and he never was. But you have to make a decision. Lewis says this, and we have the quote, it'll be up here on the screen. He's a lot more eloquent than me. A man, who was mere, uh, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with a man who says he is a poached egg. I think that's funny. Or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Jesus leaves no room for anything else. You must either accept him or reject him. There is no lukewarm following of Jesus. There's no middle ground. There's no just saying, "Ah, I think he's just a good moral teacher. I guess I'm okay with this. He is either the Lord of your life who died for your sin 
or he is a madman. He's crazy. He's a total liar. You have to decide. Well, what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who do you believe him to be? Well, I will say this. I believe Jesus is the best thing that has ever happened to this world. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. And he died for my sin and yours. And if you repent and commit to follow your life to him by faith, he will save you from sin. There is forgiveness of sin in Jesus for everyone. Because he died a death that you deserved, and he did not stay dead. He rose again three days later. He resurrected from the grave, and he conquered my sin, your sin, and the sins of the world. Death was defeated when Christ rose from the dead. And if you put your faith and trust in him and him alone, you can be saved. That's where Jesus leaves us. That's where Jesus demands us to be. You must see him as your Lord or call him a liar or a lunatic. There's no room for anything else. That is my hope for you this morning. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and when I do, we'll, we'll stand and sing another song, and then we'll finish out our time today by taking the Lord's Supper with one another after we sing. But as I do that, I do want to encourage you to, to consider those things. To consider, if you're not a Christian here this morning, who is Jesus? As you look at the trial of Jesus, what they bring him forth, their own desire seeking to put him to death, Do you find him totally innocent? Do you find him to be willing to save you? Because he is. He's willing to go to the cross and he's willing to save. The question is, is will you trust him? Will you continue to live life your own way or will you decide instead? There's a different way to live. For those of us who do know Christ, who know that he is the Son of God, the Son of the blessed, I pray that this might be a time that we would respond and worship, that we would pray and ask who in our lives needs to know this message and needs to know this good news, and that we might take account and ask in what ways have we failed to recognize him as the Lord, and may we seek to serve him. Let me pray.